right, good morning. You ready to get after it? Starting a new book study, like Michael said. Pumped about that. It's the book of James. So if you have your Bibles, turn to the book of James. Uh, recently, or not too long ago, we went to the book of Hebrews. Uh, James is after Hebrews, but if you need to use the table of contents, that's what it's there for. But open them up to James. We're going to be in James for a while. In fact, uh, we're going to be in James for 22 weeks in all, and there's only five chapters, so uh, we're going to be going slow, uh, looking through this and digging into it, and looking forward to that. Um, James is one of, if not the earliest New Testament book that we have. Uh, when when James was written, Christianity was largely just um, a Jewish uh, ex- extension of Judaism. Jesus was Jewish. Uh, he was the Jewish Messiah, and uh, Jews put their faith in Jesus, and that was kind of the extent um, of Christianity at the time. This was written, I believe, before Acts 15. And if you're not familiar with the book of Acts and Acts 15, they have the uh, Jerusalem Council where they're trying to figure out what do we do with all these Gentiles who are coming to faith uh, in Christ. So before that, it was largely just a group of Jewish believers. Uh, James is an extremely practical book. In fact, there's a higher percentage of imperatives or commands in uh, the book of James than any other New Testament book. So just a heads up, there's a lot of commands going to come at us. It's practical. It's do this, do this. It's going to affect our lives. This isn't just um, what uh, do you have faith, but is your faith working? Is it shaping your life? Is it shaping the way that you live and behave? Um, so we're going we're gonna to get into that. I don't know if as a church, or just church in general, if we talk enough about a transformed life. Um, we, we like to talk about grace and forgiveness, and those are amazing truths. Thank God for that. But sometimes I think we sit there um, in a way to feel comfortable in sin because we have grace and we have forgiveness. And we don't often make the connection between the grace and forgiveness found in Jesus Christ to a transformed life found in Jesus Christ. Well, James makes that connection. And he's going to press us like, okay, you're a follower of Jesus. Therefore, like, let's let it see it lived out in our life. So uh, he's going to get right after us. And we're looking forward um, to getting our toes stepped on. Right. All right. Here we do it. We're going to do the first four verses today. Um, Now, we're going to move slower through this book. So I would encourage you to get comfortable writing in your Bible underlining, circling things. If you're not comfortable with like writing in your Bible, uh, at the Resource Center, we have the James Scripture Journals. Uh, There's plenty of room to write notes, but words matter, and we're going to look at these words, and we want to make some connections to what James is making, so um, we encourage you to do that. Now, James gets right after it. I'm just going to tell you that right away. Like He just, he just kind of jumps right in. Uh, it's like, hey, I'm, this is who I am. This is who you are. Now let's go. Uh, you don't get a lot of kind of a normal uh, introductory niceties that you might see in Paul's letter where there's a formal greeting, a thanksgiving, an opening prayer. He kind of just kind of eases into it. Uh, James is much more brash of just kind of, let, let's go. Let's get after it. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to jump in uh, and read the first couple verses. Then we'll pull back and be like, okay, what is it that James wants to talk to us about? So, James chapter 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. That's, that's all he has. Greetings. Then he says, count it all joy. He jumps right into command here. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. So you see that? 
It's like, hey, I'm James. This is who you are. No, I got some problems or I got some concerns with how you're dealing with trials and I want to talk about it. And right away kind of gives them a command. He just kind of jumps into it. Now, he does start off introducing himself and it's important. So I want you to underline James, a servant of God and of Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to come back to that. So he introduces himself and then he addresses who he's talking to. And he calls them the 12 tribes in dispersion. Now, the 12 tribes is an Old Testament reference to the chosen people of God, because they are the 12 tribes of Israel. Um, But before Israel was a nation, it was a man, and it was Jacob. And God changed Jacob's name to Israel, and Jacob had 12 sons, and that became the 12 tribes of Israel. And if you remember the story of of Jacob, he was the younger of the twins. Esau was born first, but it says that God chose Jacob, like, I'm choosing you. I'm going to work through you. My plan is going to unfold you. So when he says, you're the 12 tribes, he's saying, you are God's chosen people. And then he says, in dispersion or dispersed. That word dispersion kind of reference to the nations outside of Palestine. So basically, he's writing to Jewish Christians who, due to persecution, have fled Jerusalem. If you remember in the book of Acts, it starts out right away. Peter preaches on Pentecost. Uh... Like 3,000 people put their faith in Christ. The church is born, Acts chapter 2. Just this amazing experience of all people gathering in their homes, gathering in the temple, breaking bread together, selling their possessions, sharing with one another. And it says the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. Awesome thing to be a part of. Like the early church seeing God work, but then what gets introduced? Persecution. And there's a guy by the name of Saul. Um, we know him as the Apostle Paul. And this was before his conversion. He was kind of leading the charge and persecuting the church. And it led up to the death of Stephen, who was one of the deacons in the first church there. Uh, he was killed. And then it says Saul's going in and out of the houses, kind of dragging Christians out in this persecution. Well, this persecution caused some believers in Jerusalem to move away, to leave. They were kind of dispersed because of the opposition and struggles that they were facing. So, this is what we need to understand. When the people are getting this letter, life for them is hard. It's really hard. They left their home. They left behind their jobs. They're trying to find new uh, ways of making a living. They just fled uh, for their safety. This was the context of their life when they get this letter. Now, maybe you haven't been like violently rushed from your home. Maybe you have. I've talked to people in our church as refugees where it's like, that's my story. They came into our village with machine guns at night and we just had to flee, right? But for a lot of us, that's not our story. But that doesn't mean that we're not unaware of what hardship is and trials are. Like he makes it really broad. He's like, of various kinds. There are various degrees of trials. There's various types of trials. He's not trying to like compare what's the worst trial. He's just saying all of us face trials. Trials happen. There's something we all deal with. So the question is, how are we to deal with them? For them, uh, the original audience, they were facing persecution. They were facing poverty. These are all things that come up in the letter. They were facing internal conflict relationally. Uh, they were facing illness. Um, but you can go ahead and fill in your trial to where it fits in there. Job loss, marital strife, cancer, didn't make the sports team. Girlfriend broke up with you. I don't know what it is. Like, you, you know some trials, and it's various kinds. It's broad. 
But the question arises, how are we supposed to respond to trials? Or let me refine it. How are Christians supposed to respond to trials? Because what, what does he say? Who is he addressing? The 12 tribes. I'm talking to the chosen people of God. And he even calls them brothers. So brothers, sisters, Christians. How are we supposed to respond to trials? And here's where the text gets tricky. Because I don't think anyone would dispute that trials and hardships and difficulties are a part of life. And we all got to deal with them. But James says, hey, count it all joy when you face trials of various kinds. Uh, I think if he would have said, hey, when you face trials of various kinds, toughen up. Or, or if he would have said, hey, when you face trials of various kinds, support one another. Like, I think we could all be like, that makes sense. I get it. I'm with you, James. But can we admit when he says, hey, when you face trials of various kinds, count it all joy, that's a curveball, right? Is that kind of like, I don't know. I mean, I don't get, like, that's a hard connection to make. That's a curveball that you want us to count it joy in those trials. But here's the thing. None of us in this room are against joy. It's not like, how dare you, James, want us to be joyful. Like, that's not our reaction, The more reaction is this kind of confusion of how is that actually possible? How how do we connect joy with trials? Because joy at our wedding day, joy when our kids were born, joy on vacation, joy at the promotion. Like that all makes sense. That's easy. I'm with you there. But joy in trials and suffering and hardship, how do we make that connection? How do we get there? How, How are these believers who are scattered because of the persecution that they are facing... Supposed to find joy in those situations, that circumstances. How are we in our situations and our difficulties supposed to count it joy? And I think what James is after for us is he wants to provide for us a perspective. Like there, there is a perspective that, that I want you to have um, when it comes to the trials that you face. There, there is a lens that I want you to look through. And when you look through this lens, you will even be able to see joy in the midst of your trials. How many of you would like to put on those glasses? All right, let's dive in here. Let's read all four verses, and then we'll back up. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete Lacking in nothing. Now, I want to give us kind of just a basic, not, a, not extremely detailed, but just kind of a basic structure of the verses that we're looking at here. So right away we get the author, James. That's who's writing it. Then we get the, the audience, the 12 tribes. That's who he's writing. And then he gets his very warm greeting. Greetings, right? That's it. Then you get the first exhortation or command. Count it all joy, my brothers. Then we get the, the time or the context that we are to live out that command of counting it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. Then we get the basis for how we're able to do that. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Then we get the second exhortation or the second command and let steadfastness have its full effect. And then we get the purpose that you may be perfect and complete Lacking in nothing. So that kind of gives us the structure, the flow of thought of what James is telling us here. Uh, And we're going to kind of work backwards towards uh, the joy in these trials that we're supposed to have. And what he's saying here towards the end that kind of comes together is that trials are a part of our maturing. 
Like when he says that you're going to be uh, perfect and complete, lacking nothing. I don't think like perfect, oh, we're going to be perfect. Yeah, someday when Jesus comes back and we get new bodies and we get our glorified new nature, yes, perfection. But until then, what he's talking about is you're going to be fully developed. You're, you're, going, to, you're going to be complete. You're going to be whole. You're going to be mature. Now, that word ought to make us perk up because it's part of our mission statement, right? Our mission statement is we want to raise what? Mature disciples. So that's true, and that's the case. Then the conclusion is, if we're going to accomplish our mission, trials will be a part of accomplishing our mission. Because there's something that mature us. There's something God uses to mature us. The promise here is that if we persist in faith, we will grow in godliness. Or more specifically, if we persist in faith through trials, we will grow in godliness. Now, we'll get to how we persist in faith in a bit. But part of the perspective that James is helping them see and helping us see is that trials are not just a part of life, they're a part of development. Trials are not just a part of life, they're a part of development. Now, if you go fifth grade science class here, if you remember a caterpillar turns into what? Butterfly. Butterfly. Three points for everybody. All right? Uh, but the process of doing that is they would go into their chrysalis or their cocoon. You're like, wow, you did great in fifth grade science. I looked it up. I had to restudy. Now, here's the interesting thing. If you would cut open the chrysalis ahead of time to let the butterfly out, you would destroy the butterfly and it would not be able to fly. The butterfly fighting to struggle to free itself is how it develops its muscles to actually fly. So you might think you're doing it some favor, like, let me help you get it out of that, get you out of that struggle, but actually you're doing it no favors. So let me kind of apply it in a maybe more offensive way. Um, Parents. I'm a parent. I get it. Like when we see our kids, like that coach yelled at my kid or that teacher mistreated my kid or this problem's going on and they're going through a difficult time. You want to just kind of come in and rescue them from that situation, but you are not doing them any favors. Because going through hard things is part of our development. So James, talking to a group of people that are going through a really hard time of persecution and poverty and opposition, he's saying, hey, God is at work through your trial. He is developing you in this trial. There's actually something good to come out of this. I don't know if that's comforting, but it's true. Here's what we need to see. Trials are an opportunity to grow. Trials are an opportunity to grow. Now, hold on to that word opportunity. We'll come back to it. But not only is it an opportunity to grow, it's an opportunity to grow that God is ultimately behind and sovereign over. So when he says 12 tribes, that's an intentional loaded phrase. He's talking to a group of Jewish believers that know their Old Testament, that know their history. And these 12 tribes, they were at one time just 12 brothers. And where were they developed into a tribe? When did a family become a nation? Slavery. In opposition. Under persecution. It's what God used to develop his people. So when he's talking to a group of people that have been scattered because of persecution, and he says, you're like the 12 tribes. Do you remember them? Yeah, God used hard things to shape his people. And right now, you are the chosen people of God, and you're going through hard things. And God is going to shape you through these hard things, because great is his faithfulness. Like, he has not abandoned you in the midst of hard things. In fact, these hard things are evidence of his closeness and his, his attention and his care and his development of you in this time. So don't, so don't try to just get out from under it. 
is behind the situation. Uh, look, look at verse 2 and 3. He says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for or because you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Now, in verse 2, it's just it's very general. It's trials of various kinds. Like we all go through different kinds of trials. Life's hard. It happens. Just kind of very general. But in verse 3, it gets really specific. It's, it's not trials. It's testing. These trials that you might not be able to make sense of, they're just kind of random and happen to a lot of people. Um, he connects that to the testing, the testing of God. So those trials are your testing. Now that word testing is used to talk about the process to make metals pure, or literally it means to prove genuine. Uh, it, it refines something. So if you're going to purify gold, you heat it up and the impurities come to the surface and you skim them off and you heat it up and the impurities come to the surface and you skim them off. That, that's the process that he's talking about when he uses this word testing. And God tests his people. It's all throughout scripture, whether it's Abraham or Joseph or Israelites or David or Jesus, God tests his people. And this is what we have to get. God is more interested in your development than your comfort. You with me? God is more interested in your development than your comfort. Like he'll put you in the fire to bring out the impurities to deal with them. Like a trainer. I don't know if you've ever had a trainer or a strength coach. It's like they're going to make you do difficult things. Things you don't want to do for the sake of your development. Like that strength coach saying, I'm trying to make you the best athlete possible. You may not like me, but I'm here for your good, right? God is saying, I'm trying to make you the most godly person possible. And, I, and I'm going to put you in difficult situations to bring out the impurities, to deal with those things. I'm for your development. God is more interested in your development than your comfort. But here's the tension. If you're more interested in your comfort than your development, trials are going to be devastating. You are not going to be able to count it all joy. In fact, any trial that you go through, you're going to be angry. You may turn bitter, frustrated. But listen, part of the refining nature of trials is that it reveals what needs to be dealt with. Just like refining gold, the process of kind of bringing the impurities to the surface, trials do that. Trials often expose our idols. They attack our idols. Whatever has become too dear to us. Because when trials happen, it's, it's usually threatening something we, we hold close to. Or it, it attacks or removes something we hold dear to. And it reveals our level of attachment. Right? I didn't know how much I found my identity and value in my job until I lost it. I, I didn't know how much... I relied on my security and my bank account until the market crashed. Right? I didn't know how much that I thought I had value because of who I was married to until our marriage fell apart. Like those things just kind of bring the idols to the surface. It reveals what we need to be worked on. And it's really interesting because at the end, it says that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now that, that phrase, lacking in nothing, literally means to not be in want. And sometimes, trials teach us we don't need what we thought we needed. And when we hear that phrase, lacking in nothing, we tend to think, well, if I'm lacking, 
I need something, so I'm no longer lacking, right? I'm lacking this. If I get it, then I'm no longer lacking it. We have to get something. But sometimes, to truly lack nothing, we need to have things taken away to realize we don't really need it. I didn't know I didn't really need that job to feel valuable until I lost it. I didn't really know that my security didn't lie in my bank account until the market crashed. I didn't really know that Christ is all I needed until he was all I had. And things need to be taken away so that we don't, we're not in need. We realize the only thing I really need, I have in Christ Jesus. So James is telling them, yeah, you, you got scattered. You lost a lot. You lost your homes. You lost your property. You lost your job. You lost your community. But God is at work. God, he's doing something. Like he's bringing you to maturity. He's refining you. He's shaping you. He's, he's dealing with you in this. So don't just reject it. Don't turn bitter about it. Like God is working good in it. In fact, uh, go to Romans 8.28. We'll put it on the screen. We've, we've referenced this a lot. And it's an amazing passage. You should know it. It says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Now, all things, we've said this for means what? All things, right? Even the bad things, even the hard things, even the difficult things. And God is using those things to bring about his good. But people like to quote verse 28 without looking at verse 29 to see what is the good that all things are working towards. So let's read it in context. It says, we know that for those who love God, all things, difficult things, hard things, trials, work together for good for those who are called according to his purposes. For, or because, those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. And what did he predestine him for? To be conformed to the image of his son. That's the goal. That's what all things are working toward. That you would be more Christ-like. How many of you guys want to be conformed to the image of the son? Think about it. Don't raise your hand too quickly. Because what he's saying is, trials can help with that. Trials can help with that. I mean, if the goal is to be conformed to the image of his son, cancer can do that. A job loss can do that. Relational conflict can help with that. But when we are more passionate about our comfort than actually being conformed to the image of Christ, well then trials are only a bad thing. And we won't count it all joy. In fact, it's revealing. It's like, I didn't, I didn't really want to grow in patience. I wanted the promotion. And I didn't get the promotion. And now I'm angry. I didn't really want to grow in my contentment in Christ. I wanted that perfect family. And he didn't keep his vows. And now I'm, I'm not counting it joy. Are you kidding me? I'm angry because what you really wanted was taken away. Not being conformed into the image of Christ. Something else was your treasure. But if we're most passionate about being conformed to the image of Christ, then we're looking at trials through a different lens. We're looking at it and we're seeing it like this is something that's going to grow me. This is something that's going to shape me. This is something that's going to refine me. 
And then we can count it all joy. Now, to be clear, James is not saying that the reason for our joy is our trials. He's not saying, hey, enjoy your trials, right? Stage four cancer, woo! Like, he's not like, rejoice in that. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, uh, you, you need to find joy in what your trials can produce in you. Your trials have spiritual value. They're the context in which you get shaped. I'm going to learn to pray like I've never learned to pray before through this. I'm going to learn to trust and depend on God's faithfulness through this like I've never had to before. I'm going to understand what it really means to be content in Christ going through this trial. I never would have understood before if I didn't go through this trial. That's what he's saying. Like This is the context um, for which we're shaped and we're developed. It presents the opportunity to grow. Now, here's why I say opportunity. This text, in this text, trials don't bring about maturity. Don't, don't make that mistake. In this text, trials don't bring about maturity. Responding well to trials brings about maturity. So it raises two questions in my mind. What then does responding well to trials look like or mean or how practically are we supposed to do that? And then how actually do we respond that way? So one, what does responding to trials well look, what does it look like? And then two, how do we actually do that? Uh, if you go back to the structure of these verses, we pointed out that there's two uh, commands, count and let. Those are the two commands. That's what he's telling us to do. So he's, he's challenging them in to respond to their trials. Here's the imperatives that he gives us. Count and let. Let's look at the second one first. The second command is easy to miss because we don't see let as a very commanding verb. But he says in verse 4, he says, And let steadfast have its full effect. Basically, what he's saying is, let the trial play out. Let it finish its work. Let it do its thing. Don't be so quick to get out from whatever hardship you're in the middle of. Don't be just trying to escape it. Trials are a little bit like chili. You gotta let it simmer. You gotta let it marinate. Let the flavors come together. Right? It's like bacon chicken. You don't want to eat chicken that's not cooked. Don't pull it out of the oven too soon. You gotta let that thing cook. When your trials happen, it's like you gotta let that cook. Like something's happening. God is doing something here. So don't be too much of in a hurry to get out from whatever the uncomfortableness is. Don't be in a hurry to do that. If God is sovereign, which he is, over your trials, then let it have its full effect. Let it, let it do its thing. Or, or put it this way. When you're in a trial, don't try to escape it until you've benefited from it. When you're in a trial, don't try to escape it until you have benefited from it. Until you can look at that trial and say, this has taught me what it really means to depend on Christ. This has taught me what it really means to be a dependent in prayer. This has taught me how valuable time in the word every day is. This has taught me what it means to worship when, when my heart is hurting. Like, don't try to escape it until you've benefited from it. But to let it happen, to let it have its full effect, you have to believe that there is a loving God behind it that is working on developing you. So what if every time you faced a trial, instead of just like, how do I get out from under this? What if your response was, God, what are you teaching me? What is it that you want me to learn? How are you growing me? What, what are you do developing in me? But do you believe that there is a God who is sovereign even over the difficulties that you face? Do you believe that there's good to find in it? 
Maybe you might have heard this story, but there was a farmer who had uh, two boys, kind of an eccentric dad, and he had concern over his boys because one boy was like super pessimistic, like everything was bad, uh, and another boy was almost naively optimistic. And he's like, the world, like my pessimistic son is just going to be so down, he's not going to find the good in the world. And his optimistic son is like, he's just going to be uh, naively hurt by the realities of this world. So he had an idea of ways he could maybe try to help them. So he, he took his pessimistic son and he locked him into a room full of uh, toys that he bought for him. And then he took his optimistic son and he locked him in a room full, piled high, full of manure. And he went about any work in his day. And then he went back to check on his pessimistic son and he was just sitting in the corner and he wasn't playing with any of the toys. He's like, boy, what's wrong? He's like, dad, they make these toys. They're all plastic. I didn't want to break any of them. And besides, there's too many to choose from. And he just kind of said, he's like, well, that didn't work out too well. Um, so then he said, I'll check on my optimistic son. And he opened the door there and he sees manure splattered all over the walls and he doesn't see his son anywhere. So he yells for him and out of the pile of manure pops up his son with a big grin on his face. And he's saying, what are you doing? He's like, dad, with all this crap in here, there's got to be a pony somewhere. <laughs> It's, it's a, in the midst of your trials. Come on now, you're eating into my time. I've already gone long. You got to find the pony, right? Like, do you, when you're in the midst of a trial, do you believe you have a loving father that wants to develop and shape you? It's like, God, what are you teaching me? What do you, what's the gem that you have for me to learn? How do you want to grow me? Because you have to let steadfast have its full effect. And steadfast doesn't mean passive waiting. The word steadfast uh, communicates an active persistence. Like, I'm leaning into this. I'm here looking for the pony. So what are we to do when we're actively uh, waiting? Count. Right? So that's the first command. Right? Count it all joy. And that word count uh, means to think or to regard. And it also means to lead or have authority over. So basically, it's a call to lead your mind when you find yourself in trials. Because we all know, if you don't lead your mind in difficult times, our mind goes to dark places. Like, if you just let it do its thing on its own, like, you're going to start thinking of, a, of terrible things, and this probably is, and I, they probably hate me, and God doesn't have any time for me, and you just kind of spiral into some dark places. He's saying, no, 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 you need to uh, have authority over your thoughts, especially in trials. Listen, when times are hard, lead your mind. When times are hard, lead your mind. Look at two and three again. It says, count it all joy... My brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for or because you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect, complete, and lacking in nothing. He's saying, listen, you have something to count because of what you know. You know that your God is in control. You know that he'll never leave you or forsake you. You know that he has your development in mind. You know that he's going to use this to develop you into maturity and completeness so that you lack nothing. He's going to use this to show you know that. So count it, count it, like think upon it. Take your mind off your trials and your troubles and put them on to what you know about your God. That's the command. So actually two commands, count and let, and, and they're connected, or one serves the other. Think of it like this. When trials come, rehearse your beliefs to enhance your endurance. When trials come, rehearse your beliefs. Count on what you know to be true about God. He's in control. He has my development in mind, and that will enhance your endurance. I'm going to stay in this. I'm going to let it play out because I know God is doing something. I know he's up to something. That's how you persist in faith. 
Now, that is the what responding well in trials look like. The next question is, how in the world do we actually do that? Because when trials come, they usually don't like tap on your door. They punch you in the face. And it hurts, and you're angry, and the reaction is to, to retaliate, to cry, to be angry. Like, how do we actually be people who can count it all joy when trials happen? Because there is a disposition or an attitude that we have to have in order to actually be able to cultivate joy in hard times. And James doesn't come right out and say it, but I think it's probably the loudest uh, point he makes in these first few verses. Go back to verse 1. It says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me tell you a little bit about James. James is the leader of the church in Jerusalem. He was known as James the Just because of his excessive devotion to righteousness. James writing us a book about practical godliness would be like Dan Gable coming to talk to us about work ethic. He's got some credibility, okay? Uh, James had a nickname of Old Camel Knees because of how much time he spent on his knees praying. You ever see one of those guys with like the cauliflower ear? And you're like, oh, you wrestled, didn't you? Can you imagine looking at somebody's knees and be like, oh, you pray? That was James. That was James. James also happened to be the half-brother of Jesus. So, with all of that, you might think he would introduce himself, James, maybe you've heard of my brother. (laughs) Right? I mean, he's about to give some hard commands. Let's kind of beef up the resume here. James, I pray more than you do. James. The just. James, the guy in charge back in Jerusalem. But he didn't say any of that. He says, James, a servant. And there's actually four or five Greek words he could have used that would be translated as a servant. And he chose the one that shows the individual as utterly dependent on the master for food, housing, clothing, and everything. In fact, a better translation would say, James, a slave. That's how James, the brother of Jesus, the guy that prays so much his knees are calloused, the example of righteousness, the leader of the church, chose to introduce himself, a servant. And what does that have to do with how we receive trials? You know, a servant doesn't have an attitude of entitlement. And a person that is entitled is going to be wrecked by trials. Because here's their response whenever a trial comes. I don't deserve this. I, I don't deserve this. I deserve better than this. I deserve the promotion. I didn't deserve to go through this. Why do I got to do this? Why didn't somebody else? I live better than that person. Why are they doing that? And they kind of have this an attitude of entitlement. And they're not able to rejoice in their trials, nor grow from their trials, because they're just so distraught that they're even in a trial. They're pounding on the door. Let me out of this crappy situation instead of looking for the pony. So maybe you would say that Jesus is your savior. But would you say that you're his servant? His slave? To the way we're supposed to respond to trials is to 
count it all joy because we know that our God is in control and he is working on us and he has our good in mind. And with that, we just stay in it. We let it play out because God is in charge. But how we actually do that is humility. We see ourselves as the servant. Humility is is the soil of our heart that can receive trials. I'm not above that. I'm not above suffering. Are you kidding me? I follow somebody who is executed. Why am I above suffering? It's a, it's a humility that, that, that is able to receive God's sovereignty in our trials. Humility is the soil of our heart that can receive God's sovereignty during our trials that will grow and produce joy in the midst of them. It's like an oak tree that, that kind of grows up right in the middle of a sidewalk. You ever see that? Just kind of bust the sidewalk apart. You're like, how does an oak tree grow up in the sidewalk? Yet that acorn found the crack of the sidewalk, found the soil, and it just kind of produced. But you would think a tree's not supposed to grow up through sidewalk. The same way you would look at somebody going through some hard stuff and be like, how do you have joy? You're not supposed to have joy and cancer at the same time. You're not supposed to have joy and lose your job at the same time. You're not supposed to have joy and watch the market crash at the same time. Like, how, how do you have joy now? It's like my heart found the promises of God. And I know whatever I go through is for my good and his glory. And it's not my end. It's just a part of my training. If we could refine that big idea a bit, it's a little wordy, but here's what I would want it to say. When trials come, receive them with humility in order to rehearse your beliefs, to enhance your endurance, which leads to our godliness. And what's the emotion again that James attaches to this? Joy. Can you imagine if we as a church just had that unshakable joy, like Paul and Silas? We could be in jail. We're still singing. We're still singing. And sometimes we think, like, how does that happen? Do you know that the Bible commands emotion sometimes? It commands, rejoice, be joyful. And you're like, how do you command emotions? I think this text really helps us out because uh, James has given us a bit more insight to how we get there. Technically, the command is not to be joyful. The command is to count, to think, to take authority over your mind and put them on the things that you know. Specifically, the things you know to be true about God. And when you think about those things, that stirs up joy. Guys, here's the good news. No matter what your trial is, the Christian always has good news to count on. In fact, let's go back to Romans 8 to see this. You guys know this. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed indeed interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. Now here's what he's saying. All that you see is the trial. All that you see is the persecution. All that you see is a group of people that were scattered out of Jerusalem because of the hardships they were having. All you see is we're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. But that ain't the case. No. In all these things, what things? The hardships. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. 
For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Listen, church. There will never be a trial a Christian will go through in which he or she does not have a path to joy-producing news. That's why James commands them and us, count on it. Think, think about that joy-producing news. Take your mind there. Think about it. Like If God is for us, who can be against us? Can trials wreck us? Like Use that logic. If he did not spare his own son, but sent him to the cross for us, do you think God did all that for you only to let a job loss be your end? Only to let cancer kind of swoop in at the last moment and snatch you away? Do you think he, sp- he sent his son to the cross and did all that only to let that relationship fall apart and be your demise? Wouldn't it make more sense that those trials are just meant to refine us? To teach us to pray more and trust more and depend more and seek more. It wouldn't make more sense if those things were just there to prepare us. Like a bride being prepared for her groom. Church, it's not just that we're supposed to rejoice or count it joy in our trials. Because of Christ, we can have joy in our trials. If you think about it which is the command of the text. Count it. You know God is in charge. You know that he's working all things. You know that he has your development and maturity in mind. You know that he wants to lead you to a place where you lack nothing. And that may not mean he's giving you more stuff. It may mean he's taking stuff away from you that you think you need, but you don't really need because you have Jesus. And wouldn't you like to be conformed to the image of the Son? Because that's the son who went to the cross for you. I mean, you want to talk about suffering? Christ suffered. And God was sovereign over that suffering. Because what did he bring about to the suffering of Jesus Christ? Our redemption. And what is he going to bring about through your suffering? Your development and your godliness for the sake of our relationship and our reconciliation back to him. So when we turn our attention to the suffering of Jesus Christ, that his body was pierced and his blood was shed, you have to remember, his suffering gives your suffering context. His suffering means your suffering is not your end. It's just a part of your training. Let's pray. Father, I pray that we would be people that nothing would stop us from praising and exalting you. Nothing would steal our joy. Persecution, famine, destruction, illness, opposition. We are more than conquerors through Christ Jesus our Lord. I pray that we would show that we treasure our godliness more than our comfort. In any trial that comes our way, we would rejoice knowing it's a tool you will use to shape and develop us. pray this in your name. Amen.